Hello again, and welcome to Killing the Great White Male. I'm celebrating the fact that we are, well, this is the last shared experience in season two. It's going to be, what, five, six episodes. Um, uh, but we're, <laughs> we've made it a year in. We've gotten through two seasons of amazing experiences and amazing books, just incredible work, and we're still going. Um, and I still get to say killing the great white male on a regular basis when I record this stuff. So woohoo! I'm celebrating a lot. Uh, today is the beginning of, of my shared experience with Nicola Rossini, uh, a friend from, from my back to school college, uh, experience. And we're reading hood feminism by Mickey Kendall. And I got to say a few things about this book before we start in, um, First off, uh, a friend of mine asked for a book on intersectionalism recently, and I said, this is the book I recommend because it's so representative of the the current um, kind of the current wrestling with um, intersection. I, I would call it lived intersectionalism or dynamic intersectionality or something like that, because it, it just very much... Um, it embodies the fact that these are all moving targets, that there's no static identity, and that our privilege and oppression can flip-flop depending on what our contexts are, and all of these wonderful things that, that force us to acknowledge um, that relationships are really what, what govern even, yeah, even a toxic culture like U.S. US uh patriarchy and, and empire and colonialism. So, uh, yeah, this, this book's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, I think part of me was a little sad that there wasn't more that was like, quote unquote, new for me in it, but I guess I've been at this for a while. <laughs> and so I've read uh, so many of the things that she, she quotes in this book, but her assembly of all of this amazing wisdom and her weaving of her own experience um, into it is just like, it's bomb after bomb and gem after gem, just wow. Um, and the other thing that both Nicola and I, uh, mentioned off air after we were done recording, <laughs> I, I realized is that the book was so damn well paced for, for breathing. It was just a wonderful experience of it, 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 it Kendall did just such a great job of easing in and out of incredibly intense stuff and yet still like both making the point, not letting off of those points, but also giving us room to breathe between the parts that were really intense. So just I can't say enough positive about this this book. Just get the damn thing. Um, the other thing for me personally is that it speaks so much to my family. She unpacks so many different aspects of of justice movements right now and and why you know well middle class white feminism just simply is insufficient she she had she goes after so many of them that i saw my own family in there we're very much what people would call white you know in so many ways other than the thanksgiving flan um so it really just it, it was amazing to see somebody really tackle these things my household was my parents came out of, uh, you know, the generation, they're boomers. They're the generation that, um, that burned their bras and their draft cards and, uh, and, a, and, and really went after the system. But then like it stopped and, and it stopped. I'm convinced because 
these movements were single axis movements. So the feminism that, that my mom largely learned was around, uh, yes, I mean, of course, abortion rights, but it was very much around how she needed to be able to wear pants and that she was a valid human being um, uh, and, and that sort of thing. But it, it, it didn't go, it didn't go necessarily beyond that. And so I love the fact that this addresses the challenges that we still faced in spite of the fact that my parents were, were very much interested in being fair and just human beings as the, as they walked through the world and, and their life uh, shows that. And at the same time, there were so many gaps in the work that we were doing back then. Um, and, and this book articulates those gaps so perfectly. And, and I, I wish it was something, you know, I could have read. I wish it was something my parents could have read back then. I wish it was something I could have read back then. It didn't exist back then. The wisdom did, though. Um, but anyway, there you go. There's my sales pitch for this damn book. Just it's it's fabulous. Um, in the meantime, thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy this last shared experience as much as I did. Uh, uh, just listening back to bits and pieces of it again as I tried to figure out how to cut it up into... <laughs> bite-sized portions so that people can digest it um yeah uh reach out uh let me know what you're thinking about all of these conversations these shared experiences um reach out and share this thing please um yeah looking forward to spending more time with you uh next season but in the meantime we got what six episodes to go here so uh let's let's get them started Nicola! Bryce! Yay! Hey. We're doing the thing. Is headsets working? We are working? doing the thing. Yep. Yeah. Headsets are working. We read the whole book. It's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful you did this one with me and that you brought it up. Because <laughs> I, I got to tell you, this one, it... it Oh, well, anyway, okay. Um, introductions and what the hell we're doing here. Let's do that first. Um, All right. First things there. first. <laughs> uh, so, audience, this is Nicola Rossini. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to introduce you. I, I, a friend from college, but the fact is we're separated by, like, years of weirdness because I had to go back to college after I had kids. Um <laughs> And and you were just always one of those amazing souls um, who managed to get shit done, but always you, you had a kindness about you and you had a like, you had a way of interacting with people that helped them feel valued that I really appreciated. Um, or, okay, helped me feel valued. There we go. Um, so, yeah. So that was that was beginnings of connections there, all in theater, of course, because you know most good things in my life uh, come out of the arts. <laughs> <laughs> and you've done a hell of a lot since then. So where can people find you? 
Uh, gosh. Um, the easiest is LinkedIn. Uh, I'm at Writing Chaos, which is my consulting LLC. Um, I am a these days I'm I'm a corporate consultant and coach, uh, particularly helping companies and people going through large transitional shifts. Um, but the last I have practiced those skills, uh, I discovered I had these skills um, when when I was articulating what made me particularly special as a project manager for large scale live events and theme parks. Um, and it's, it was an interesting kind of dovetailing of it all started because at one point I recognized everywhere I walk in is one of those projects, right? <laughs> Whether or not that's what I, I was, I was interviewed for straight up down project management, but then I would wind up doing years of forensic accounting and reorganizing the cash flow. Um, and for me, it was just from the framework of, hire smart people, get the obstacles out of their way. That's my, that's my management ethos. <laughs> um, and what I would find is that overwhelmingly I would wind up novated to a client or, you know, at one point I was, I was an employee of a monarch, it, like, because they were the major stakeholder in a project, it would just kind of go to wherever because part of it is getting shit done. And part of it is trying to build the most detailed, but holistic picture of what's going like, Part of it is what got us here, but part of it is where we're going. Yeah. Um, and so often, uh, I, I have been hired on projects that look like this, and it's also how I approach things, which is the scene in Apollo 13 when they have the square filter that has to fit the round <laughs> ducts, and they've got a table full of tools and 13 hours to figure out how to make those things work together. Yes. That's where I am particularly excellent. Um, and it turns out that's really great for companies that are scaling. I have multiple times taken companies I've worked with from 12 to 200 people in about nine months, which is a huge culture change. Oh, God, yeah. Um, people don't even again, begin to understand it. They think they're just... Yeah, but you're you're going yeah. from a family to a clan, mm -hmm. and that's very um, different. And how do people feel valued within that? And how does yeah. that change? And where do where do we hold on to things that seem like strange and nonsensical because they used to make sense? Yep. Um, I servers are are some of the biggest knockdown dragout fights I ever have, uh, because it's the library of information. Yeah. Um, and overwhelmingly, everybody recognizes that it has to change to serve multiple hundreds or a thousand people than it did for 12 or 20. But it's a change and it's how you interact with your daily life. So it really like gets to those uncomfortable places. The brain does um, not like the change. No, it does not. <laughs> So these days I am I am consulting on theme park projects. Uh, I am teaching two classes, one at the Yale School of Drama and another set of workshops through USITT and the live event series. Um, my uh, foundation, Harriet B's Daughters, which is an organization for women plus in the large scale entertainment sphere. We now have our own channel on TETV, which is themed entertainment television on, um, on YouTube. You can go find it. We're doing a series of webinars on just what is it to our, our organization really started because there's all these questions that come around what you're doing that aren't technically professional, but dovetail into your professional life, right? Yeah. What does it mean to be in a femme coded body of any sort, right? Regardless of yep. where you started at birth, yep. traveling internationally, 
Oh God. What does yeah. it mean? <laughs> right. And, and who do I have that conversation with? Who do I have a conversation yep. with about, will I be able to take my hormone supplements with me into this country or get access to them yep. if I'm relocated for multiple years? And that's not technically a professional question, but it absolutely changes what I mean, my day rate is or whether or not I can even take the job. How is it not a technical question? Like, before the Army sends you overseas, they give you a bunch of fucking vaccines. Like, you know, because that transition uh, is a thing. It is. It is. And this is, this is biases of sectors and industries. The Army recognizes you as a resource holistically in a way that the oh, arts God. and construction have not That's caught just up painful. on. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. No, you're right. Um, they, and that's right where it sits. Is yep. it, and I have this conversation all the time, right? Like I would not run. I, I was a carpenter when you met me. I would not run my lathe full bore 20 hours a day without maintenance and rest and reoiling yeah. it and all of that. But we are presumed to be able to do that for our lives and our bodies, which are soft, squishy machines on a construction site in a foreign zone. Yep. Um, while being and, uh, totally disoriented as yeah. human animals who are social animals, which means our entire well-being also has to do with our interactions with the people around us. Like, to be clear. Exactly. Like, exactly. So, this machine does not run just on A plus B equals C. And that's, and that's my framework as a manager and as a coach and as somebody who's helping reframe these systems. Yeah. Is... Um, one of like, and as we look at it, right, we're, we're at the point where we currently have six generations in the workplace. We're about to have seven generations in the workplace. Mm. And, I, and I need to step back because we so often, when we're talking about longevity thinking, we call it seven generation thinking, right? Like subsistence yep. thinking is one or two generations. We are about to have the longest amount of time that the human brain can perceive altogether, and that really skews how we view things, right? And I have to start wrong. Like there's yeah. there's part of me that just wants to shout, "That's just so bad, too!" Like it's painful, and and like fundamentally, part of the conversation that we have around that, right? The amount of times that people are like, "Well, how do we teach an older generation to say goodbye and step back?" And my point is, how long have we built our system so that they can't? Yeah. That How tells them this is their whole life. This is their our value. whole worth. Yep. All of our value yep. is right in there. And and it's interesting because we think we all have such different experiences. And yet that feeling, every one of those seven generations is having yeah. in the same room. Yep. I just want to have worth. I just want to have value. And I'm very, I'm oh, very lucky. Turns out I get this people... is a capitalist problem. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and that's like, that's also what really dovetails onto our conversation today, right? Like, <laughs> All right. Before we, we have... dive into that, though. <laughs> yep. Okay. What are our boundaries today? Like, what, where, like the, I need two things. First off, are there things that you're going to say right up front? We're not talking about this. And number two, um, how, how do you want us to be around it? Do you want to be able to just like hit the no-no square and we're done? And we just pivot, or do you want to be able to explain a little bit, or do you want to make that call, make an audible as we as we go? How do you want to handle it? Um, I'm probably going to make a lot of audibles. Okay. Uh, here's here's the thing I'm going to put right up there. Anything I say today is Nicola. Anything yeah. I say today is riding chaos. Yep. I am impacted 
by all of the many companies I have worked for and consulted with, but I cannot represent their preferences and tones. Um, I am not here as an emissary for them. Your last project? Come on. No, we can't. We can't. (laughs) Very good. Very Um, good. I can't can't name many of my projects. I can name the experiences. And similarly, um, I am in a white relatively cis female like I'm, I'm kind of on the edges of of uh I'm, I'm pushing around on the genderqueer um and have been for a while but part of it is because I have so angrily staked my claim of no fuck you this isn't masculinity this is feminine power mm. um and but I can't I cannot claim to have anybody else's experience I have noticed other people's experiences and those of my colleagues and particularly where it differs from my own. Um, I do not have the understanding of the American Christian experience. I was raised uh, Italian pre-Vatican II Catholic and Jewish. So I intersect with a lot of evangelical and Christianity and it's fascinating to me and I'm a student, but it's not a lived experience. Um, so that's an interesting intersection, particularly when you get into international work. Yep. Uh, I am, I am a third and fourth culture kid, right? I come from two cultures that were trying to meld together while trying to understand the third culture of the U S. Yeah. Um, and that does impact my experience and my understanding of things. Um, and particularly when we're, when we're looking at hood feminism, the book, Mickey Kendall is so wonderful at setting the stage of we are working to understand and to, to discuss more and to bring voices into the room, but I cannot be that voice. Um, so that more uh, often than not, I am the klaxon that says, Hey, you don't have anybody from this zone talking here. And no, I'm not going to speak for them, but I'm going to point out that we got a big gap. Yeah. So you mentioned the book. Our book is hood feminism notes from the women that a movement forgot by Mickey Kendall. Um, and I'm so glad you suggested reading it. And I got to admit, this one was more of a struggle to stay engaged for me because I felt like, like personally, I'd read so much of this already. I'm like, why does this need to be written again in 2020? Like, <laughs> fucking Francis Beale wrote this in 1969. <laughs> I've read so much of this stuff at this point that I'm like, why does this have to be restated? And there's these little gems of moments in there. And I'm like, yep, fuck, yep, nope. And that's why we got to keep talking about it. Um, it, it yeah. It, where do you want to go? Like, what? Um, so I'm going to start with the contextualization. Which okay, is go. what Mickey Kendall does so beautifully. Um, those of us who are starting to engage in the work or have been here for a while or have been here a whole life, it doesn't matter. Many of the pieces are the same because we keep refusing to learn the lesson. Yes. But it is important to keep rereading it because the more that we can draw it together the more that we can help communicate it. Um, I was having this conversation over another set of workshops that a colleague and I were taking, and I asked how their experience had been, and and they said, you know, it's nothing I didn't know, but it was really affirming to have, you know, what their working group within their company has been saying and suggesting, even just to have, you know, an acknowledged consultant say, nope, these are the things you should be doing, and it won't happen overnight, and we're going to keep doing it because so often it's and and Kendall talks about this a lot. You know, it's the exhaustion of doing right, which is yeah. where we actually fail. So th- that right there, there's 
I, I love, I'm hearing pings of like the very beginning of the book and the end of the book in what you're mm-hmm. saying. But one of the parts I had, this this book, by the way, in spite of my my difficulty engaging it, because part of me was like, I've, I've read this before, but her voice is absolutely unique in it and still ended up with probably, I don't know, 80 book dog-eared pages and bookmarks and stuff. But page 36 and 37, I think she makes a point that you're going after right there. Uh, She says, mainstream feminism pays excellent lip service to the idea that poor women are supported, but in practice, it often fails to interrogate what constitutes support. Hood feminism (laughs) as a concept is not only about the ways we challenge these narratives, it is about recognizing that the solutions to many problems, in this case, hunger, can be messy and sometimes even illegal. Poverty can mean turning to everything from sex work to selling drugs in order to survive because you can't lean in when you can't earn a legal living wage and you still need to feed yourself and those who depend on you. When mainstream feminism fails to consider these options as viable, when it relies on the same old tropes rooted in respectability, it ignores that for many, a choice between starvation and crime isn't a choice. Feminism has to be aware enough flexible enough to encompass the solutions that arise in a crisis. When feminists fail to recognize the impact of hunger, they can unwittingly contribute to the harm done by failing to offer the slightest bit of compassion or grace to those who are facing only bad choices. But hunger is devastating. Its impact painful in the short term and horrifying if it endures over time or across generations. If we're going to say that this is a movement that cares for all women, it has to be one that not only listens to all women, but advocates for their basic needs to be met. You can't be a feminist who ignores hunger. I just, I love that. Okay, back, I'm just about done with this little bit here. Um, Especially when you have the power and the connections to make it an issue for politicians in a meaningful way. Fighting against hunger as hard as you fight for abortion rights or equal pay. Understand that this isn't a problem that can be addressed later. As income inequality increases and the wealth gap widens across racial lines, there's no question that for some women, for some communities, hunger is going to move past bad nutrition to outright malnutrition. If we don't make combating hunger a priority now, it will make itself a priority when far too many women and their families are suffering from it. And, I mean, bluntly, I would assert it, we've already passed that point. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, I will, if, if anybody caught it on the recording, I chuckled when you started into this. That's a trauma response. Laughter yeah. is a disarming trauma response. Oh, thank you for saying that. And I chuckle because I have five different highlights in the section you just read. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty much the whole it's, fucking book. <laughs> it's It's a recognition and the yeah. way that I can handle it is yeah. <laughs> instead of, oh, fuck, because um, that's that's the feeling, right? The yeah. feeling is that gut punch. Yep. But the release is that laughter. Well, and that, I mean, it comes right after uh, the one I highlighted right before that. I, OK, so I'm, I'm going to read this little bit here, too, then. Uh, it's page 32. She says, what I, I re, uh, what I remember is hunger and crying when I couldn't afford a Christmas tree. I remember being afraid that I couldn't make it, that I would lose my children because I couldn't provide. It's hard to take a rich woman's children. It's remarkably easy to take a poor woman's so. 
As a society, we tend to treat hunger as a moral failing, as a sign someone is lacking in a fundamental way. There's there's a ton more. Like they, it, mm-hmm. it's just like it's just bomb after bomb on on these opening pages of just exactly. And I love that she re, she does such a, a beautiful dance. I love the black feminist tradition of writing. Oh my God, I could read nothing but black feminists for the rest of my life and be a happy human. Um, but this, the dance between, this is all very well researched and she, she has all the notes in the back for the references that she's, she's referring to. But she also does this beautiful job of mixing her own experience in there. And that one pinged for me. Like I, I remember, I think it was either in Chico or right after we moved to Berkeley, um, doing the Christmas shopping only I was shopping, supposed to be shopping for food and, you know, presents started hopping in the cart and then realized I, you know, the cart was full and I had like $200 and there's no way you get out with $200, mm-hmm. you know, for a full cart of food and, and Christmas presents. And I remember standing in the store and crying uh, because I made myself put back all but one Christmas present uh, for my spouse and, and the two kids. So it was, by the way, probably in Berkeley, I'm guessing. But anyway, it regardless, like the point is it immediately went right to that visceral gut punch place that you mentioned of just like she does that so well. This portion of the conversation went right to the root of a thing I've been wrestling with. Just how dominant my experience was of 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 well, of being poor, of of living in poverty trying to to feed my family while I was going to finish my undergrad or graduate degrees I hunger at Christmas is just and the amount of shame that I experienced it, it just it it's still I, I can still taste the bile in in my throat on this topic and and then the topic that when Kendall says you know the, losing her her kids I just that was, I mean, that was why I sustained a 10-year marriage 10 years too long, was I thought I might never see my kids again. And it was a price, um, I, I, you know, I, it, it wasn't a price I was willing to pay, losing the kids. And in fact, I would, I would pay just about any price to make sure that it never happened. Um, so, so yeah, it, uh, it's a pretty incredible little bit here, I guess, personally. So there you go. Um, thank you for tuning in for uh, episode 25 and our first bit of this conversation uh, around hood feminism. We'll talk to you next time.